You are listening to the Visualising War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig and I co-direct the Visualising War project at the University of St Andrews. My guest today is award-winning photographer Peter van Uchtmael. Over a career spanning 20 years, Peter has focused particularly on representing different manifestations of the US at war. His first book, Disco Night, September 11, brought together images of the USA at war in the post 9-11 era. It was shortlisted for the 2014 Aperture Paris Photo Book Award and named a book of the year by the New York Times magazine, Time, Mother Jones and Vogue. His second book, Buzzing at the Sill, focused on the US in the shadow of the wars and was again shortlisted for various prizes and named a book of the year by Time and The Guardian, among others. And his third book, Sorry for the War, explores the vast dissonance between how the United States saw itself at war and how people on the ground experienced wars in recent years. And it also looks set to garner multiple awards. So, Peter, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Visualising War podcast. I've got lots to ask you about your experiences of photographing conflict and about the habits of visualising war, which your photography responds to and, and perhaps helps to disrupt. So thanks very much for taking time to talk to me today. Sure, my pleasure. So I wonder if we can kick off just by asking you a bit about what got you interested in conflict photography in the first place. In your book, Disco Night, you write, I was scared of war, but also comfortable in it. I felt it in me from the beginning of my consciousness. I didn't know what form it would take, but I always knew I would go. So it sounds like you were fascinated by and, and drawn to conflict from quite an early age. Is that right? That's right. I think as an American growing up at the time, I did basically the sort of post-Cold War uh, era in which kind of the militarism and the kind of conditioning of, of the glories of war and the warrior were totally omnipresent on every level of society. Um, certainly things I was exposed to constantly growing up. These were also things, uh, uh, and, I did, and I'm sure these things had an influence, but these are also things that everybody was exposed to. Um, and most chose a different path. So, you know, there's a part of me that kind of has to conclude that, you know, it's, it's partly the aspects of society, partly nature, and it's partly nurture. So I had a lot of messaging saying, oh, this is, this is how you become a man. This is how you become fully formed. This is how you're respected by society. And then I had what was in me to begin with. That's really interesting. That messaging is absolutely something which the Visualising War Project's really interested in. And the messaging that we grew up with, the sort of the ideas we're marinated in. I think in Disco Night, you particularly mentioned the impact which the first Gulf War had on you and, you know, your fascination as a sort of teenager with what soldiers were wearing and what equipment they were using and, and your sense, actually, that you might end up going to war yourself if it lasted long enough. But you didn't, of course, you ended up going to war as a photographer rather than as a soldier. So can you tell us a little how that came about? How did you end up going into photography? And do you think it was inevitable that war would be your focus? As a photographer, I mean, it quickly became very clear to me that I didn't really have any violent instincts. I didn't like to hurt people and I didn't want to cause harm. So, And, and frankly, I wasn't terribly, well, I wasn't a huge rebel. I wasn't exactly particularly beholden or respectful towards narrow forms of authority. The combination between the need for discipline and the need for to uh, allow yourself to be dehumanized, which is the process of training to be a sort of soldier warrior, quickly became extremely unappealing. But that interest didn't fade. Um, as I said, the interest was, it wasn't like a passing fancy. It was something that was a part of me, something that needed to be seen through one way or another. And as my political ideology started forming in my teenage years, that was much more, well, not pacifist, certainly anti-war and also deeply believing in the power of the press, not all the press, but the thoughtful press, the good press, the intelligent press, the reflective press to play an important societal role. You know, ending war in certain cases, rare cases, but, but at least creating a potent record for history those things became really strong draws on how I could kind of manifest my life. So it started off with writing in theory, 
because writing was what I was more familiar with and, and, and kind of trained in. And I talk and write that there's a certain, you know, I have a certain, I have an academic background to a fault sometimes, frankly. And then just on a whim, I took a photography course. That was where something kind of mystical happened, where, you know, very quickly I realized that photography was this thing that was, was going to define who I am. And I knew that almost immediately. And I don't know why I knew it. It just did. And then that was that. So lots of interesting things coming out there. And I hope we'll come back to talking a little bit about the text that you write to accompany your photographs a bit later in the conversation. I thought what you said there about the power of the press was really interesting and important. And it certainly resonates with some of our other podcast guests have talked about. So, for example, Tony Borden, the founder and director of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, very much talked about the... He's my mom's first cousin. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, we had such a great conversation with him. And, and he certainly talked to us about the sort of the role that journalism can play in conflict resolution, in forging pathways to peace, and not simply reporting on it. So of interest there in terms of the, sort of the impact that narrating war can have. We'll talk a bit about the impact that your photography has had and that you want it to have in a minute. But I wonder if you can just give us a really quick overview of the different conflicts that you've covered since you started out, since you had that sort of epiphany and realised that photography was your thing. Predominantly Iraq and Afghanistan, the American wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan seem both from the kind of American perspective and also from the unembedded uh um, I've tried to see those as holistically as possible. I'd say that's largely dominated the work I've done because I prefer to go deep than go broad and go personal than go general. Those conflicts kind of very much embody the era that I'm from and part of going to live in as an American. And then Israel and Palestine is the other one I've covered extensively for the last 10 years. Iraq and Afghanistan has been more than 15 years, also for very personal reasons and partly as a as an extension in many ways of the work I was doing with, with Iraqis uh, and, and people in the greater and Levantine diaspora. And then other conflicts here and there along the way. The, the conflicts that you've particularly focused on then, there's some personal reasons um, for your interest there. But also I think one of the things that's interesting is the fact that you've been documenting these conflicts for 10, 15 years, as you say. And I think one thing that I found really fascinating in your introduction to Disco Night, your first book, is the gradual development that you describe there of your own habits of visualising war as you learnt more and more about it and experienced the horrors of it for yourself. And you're very honest there about your changing feelings. So, for example, you write, the night before going to Iraq for the first time, I was staying in a hotel room in Kuwait. I walked around in my underwear in front of a mirror wearing my new body armour and helmet, and I felt like a real badass. What you then do is you go on to sketch how the trauma of what you witnessed, so horrific deaths, the loss of friends, the rising body count and so on, really began to affect you um, and, you know, your feelings of anger, detachment, the, the way it stopped you sleeping, how that came in tension with your sort of desire to keep going back to the conflict um, and, and documenting it. So I wonder if you can just talk us through that a bit. You know, in the last 15 years, how have your experiences of witnessing war at close quarters gradually changed how you feel about it? Oh, that's a very complex question. <laughs> I don't even know how to fully answer that in the sense that when I went into it, I think I had a sort of realistic view on some level and that it wasn't just going in blind to knowledge. I wasn't just weaned on Hollywood at that point. I kind of looked carefully at the, the canon of thoughtful and deep, eloquent and poetic war photography, war books, war films, all of that. You know, I knew the broad strokes of the genre I was reading, Sontag, I knew it pretty well, enough to be relatively clear-eyed and unsentimental about what I was getting myself into and what potential consequences it was going to have. But the experience ultimately is always a personal one, no matter how much you know going into it. And the thing that I think took me by surprise, maybe, was that was that you become like a, a frog slowly boiling in water. You don't necessarily know there's a problem until you're already well into the problem. And so going to these places, and, and especially in the early years when I was kind of in my mid-20s to late-20s, I was really spending a lot of time interested in the combat part the most. Um, the expectation of what I thought it meant to be a war photographer 
And so when I would get back, it would always be a question of waiting. You know, I was always waiting for the next trip to happen and making the lifestyle choices that were filling the void of the excitement and tension that I'd been feeling in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I never thought of myself as a particularly adrenaline-seeking person by any means. And in some ways, I'm sort of can be risk-averse even, but something really got under my skin there. And it took really till kind of a, a series of, I suppose, close calls, for lack of a better word, to for me to really like slam the brakes on what I was doing and, and kind of reevaluate my life. And those close calls were both, you know, violence towards my life and also bad interpersonal choices I was making um, when I wasn't in conflict zones. And it started to become something that I didn't want to be. And luckily I had the ability to recognize that, but not, not without a fair amount of help. It wasn't something that I could identify and pinpoint all on my own. And so I'm grateful for the support network or things could have gone, gone a lot darker and a lot deeper. Once I started to kind of extricate myself from this overwhelming commitment to the kind of front lines and the combat aspects of war, I started also seeing war much more holistically. The process had already started. It wasn't like it was, it's divided into such neat narratives. I'd already started photographing the war at home. I had already been photographing more broadly outside of combat, but combat was still a focus. But really deciding to kind of step away and, and really having seen a certain part of it through made me realize how many stories there were to tell about these wars that I hadn't been told, that I hadn't told, and that when told kind of holistically could be something uh, powerful and, and, and kind of fairly unique within the canon. And that was something that I realized that was, that was what I, I should be trying to work towards and contribute to, not just creating the same kind of imagery that maybe that, that a lot of people were doing, but to do something that was very distinctly my own. That's a really fascinating journey that you've taken there from, as you say, before you went, reading, kind of imbibing yourself in a long tradition of war photography and and starting off with a focus on combat on the front line and so on. But as you got to know war better and as war inevitably had um, a series of impacts on you, then actually looking at it more holistically. And, and that really chimes with what the Visualising War Project is interested in, in these diverse perspectives, in this kind of holistic look that can disrupt quite canonical sometimes quite narrow habits of visualizing war so I've got a follow-up question on all of that which is just thinking about who you're photographing war for for example was it your intention early on to publish your photographs of Iraq as a book did you decide to pull them together as a book later who was your sort of intended audience media organizations the reading public and did your sense of audience change over time it was always a combination on some level. I always wanted to work with the press because I'd been really weaned as a student and kind of young journalist on the successes of journalism in the Vietnam War in particular. And that's a very, very seductive narrative for, you know, a young person with delusions of grandeur. Um, so the press was important to me for that reason. Its importance shifted over time as I realized the conditions that created the perfect kind of petri dish for the press to be successful in Vietnam, those conditions simply didn't exist in 2003, 4, 5, 6, the early days of the wars. And I thought maybe the task would be easier because we had the legacy of another disastrous war to work within. But I mean, for a complicated set of reasons from the U.S. being attacked directly in a traumatic incident in the form of September 11th really distorted the kind of psychology of the, the individuals that make up the voters as a country and especially as a bloc. And having an all-volunteer army that could not mobilize in a way the population in a way they had in Vietnam when everyone felt potentially threatened or called to service in a war that once they looked into, they couldn't uh, relate to or believe in. So that those reasons and, and many others made it quickly become clear that these press was going to have more of a role for history than it was going to have for extracting the U.S. from these wars in the present. And so that was sort of how I began seeing it a little bit. And, and for that reason, and also because I'd been so influenced by books related to war more than any individual articles, 
It was the depth that a book provided that really helped me learn that I realized early on, and I already loved photo books as well. I, I really thought from the beginning that I wanted to make a body of work out of this. And, and, and within, within the first year I was even doing it, as I realized that I was in the right place and I was doing the right thing and I realized I was going to be doing it for a really long time and that I wanted to build a lot of layers off of it. And books are the perfect form for that because they're a way of kind of condensing and consolidating knowledge for a public and also for oneself. I've always found the process a catharsis as much as anything. And really fascinating to hear you talking there about the, the evolution of the role of the press almost, how different conflicts create or simply have different conditions and the press ends up taking on a different role. And you know, really fascinated by what you just said about um, the press, you know, you, you sort of sensing that the press in Iraq, Afghanistan, perhaps had more of a role for history than for the present. And, and your interest in bearing witness and providing documents comes across very much um, in the introduction to Disco Night. So you write there, despite all the death and confusion and isolation and impotence these pictures represent, I know they can only be a slender document. There are so many simultaneous existences and we can only be present in one. For every story that's recorded, there are nearly infinite ones we'll never know. The real weight of destruction is still happening constantly in anonymity across Iraq and Afghanistan and America in endless repetition of all that has come before. If I found any truth in war, I found that in the end, everyone has their own truth. And I suppose that touches on one thing you said a little bit earlier about, you know, this sort of multiplicity of experiences. Uh, but I am really interested in your use of this word document, this idea that your photographs are trying to bear witness and, and conflict photography obviously plays a really important role in making conflicts around the world more visible and in documenting them for the future. But you also seem really aware of the limitations of photography. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about um, how you think conflict photography today both broadens, perhaps also sometimes narrows public understanding of conflict. So in that bit I've just quoted, you're really aware that there's a sort of plethora of experiences out there that photographs can't capture. Do you think that that media, that the press tend to focus on certain aspects more than others? Um, you know, or, 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 you know, how broad a picture or pictures do we get of war from contemporary media? Yeah, there are two points to make about that. By the way, what, one point, even just to follow up on the previous point, at a certain point, I thought I was photographing more for history than for the present, but I, I still very much felt like I was photographing for the present and that the media was a vehicle that was necessary and continues to be necessary despite all its flaws to push back against what essentially is the political discourse, which is just a bunch of pathological liars. I mean, politicians are pathological liars by and large. And if we listened to everything they said, we'd have a completely distorted idea of what had happened and, and what continues to happen. And they're saying this in the face of all the evidence of the country. So God knows what they'd be saying if there was no press to contradict them. I mean, even listening to Biden's speech the other day that was pulling up for a project I'm working on a group exhibition about these past 20 years, uh, politician quotes from over the years. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's shocking, shocking the, the nonsense and, and the, the naked lies uh, that were being told consistently, rigorously, all these things. So that's where I do believe in the press and, and I'm proud to be a part of the press. But that segues into to what your question was, which is, the limitations of the press in visualizing conflict. And part of the reason I do books is because of their depth. Part of the reason I do books is really, it's the only place that I can truly render the conflicts as I felt them, saw them, experienced them without feelings of kind of fitting into what can be a somewhat narrow box. And, uh, you know, I've worked for the sort of prominent American publications for many years covering these conflicts and generally feel like the perspective I've come back with is fairly thoughtfully reflected on the pages of the publications. And I think the editors I've worked with have cared about getting that right. But it's a deeply limited what can be done in the first place. You have a couple pages in a magazine, you know, you have this sort of 10 pictures online, everything needs to be formed around the story and the narrative of a story. The problem with that is that 
telling an interesting war story usually is telling 50 or 60 simultaneous stories uh, mashed all together in a complex and thoughtful way to get at something that is enduring and, and, and meaningful. Seeing pictures largely disconnected from context, one or two or three at a time, you know, it, it makes it, it makes for a reliance on aesthetics and for a reliance on drama, uh, a reliance on, on the elusive icon. And all these things are fine and good. I have no objection to them and I realize why they are as they are, but it is a small part of the puzzle and maybe not even, and maybe far from the most even significant part of the puzzle. And so what gets me a little frustrated, though I'm pragmatic about it, is that, you know, here in the New York Times or Time, you know, I can show eight pictures or 10 pictures from Mosul uh, to millions of people. But when it comes to putting it into its sort of most elevated, most meaningful form, uh, it can really only reach a few thousand people. Um, in the form of a book. And actually, it, it was partly in response to that, that those limitations that when Kabul fell a few days ago, or a few months ago when this podcast runs, I, I put up the, P, I, I just decided to have a link to all the PDFs to all the books I'd done up for free on my Instagram, because it was a moment where it was important to kind of communicate with depth rather than just chase the tiny little updates coming on CNN or on Instagram, the little tidbits of information about what was happening in Kabul at that moment. What was happening in Kabul at that moment is extremely important. What led to this point and what it says about us as nation and what it says about us as a species, I think is the critical context that's always needed. Well, I absolutely commend to listeners all of your books. Go to Peter's Instagram page and and, and download them and read. And, and we'll talk a bit more about how profoundly they have helped me revisualize aspects of the Iraq and, and Afghanistan conflicts in a minute. What you were saying there, Peter, about the press and the sometimes reductive nature of only having, you know, a two-page spread, you know, a very small selection of images. That's something that we see a lot in other genres as well. So we've had some really interesting conversations with documentary makers, with people who work on digital media and the ways in which wars are represented there, sometimes, sometimes being very reductive, sometimes being quite frustrating getting a message to millions and millions of people but a message that's simpler than perhaps sometimes you know we really should be communicating this is probably a good moment actually to dive into your books so I wonder if you could start us off by talking through a couple of your favorite images from your book Disco Night which maybe sort of capture what you were trying to communicate there just before you do, I want to mention to listeners that we're going to have a blog on the Visualising War Project website, which will showcase a few of the images that Peter's going to be talking about. In a way, these are somewhat tricky questions for me to answer because I've kind of crafted my photographic style, as it were, around photographs being egalitarian in a way. You know, I, I, I don't use the visual tricks that can artificially enhance the drama of a scene in order to create something that's maybe an exaggeration of what the reality is. I'm generally kind of a little bit step back, trying to show context and scene as much as individuals and emotions, because I find that approach, I trust it more and I trust it, I trust it more when I do it and I trust it more when I see it, because we know that photographs are a very narrow shred of time, you know, the, the decision to maybe it's one two fiftieth of a second of a little frame. And then you could take a thousand pictures in a day and not use one of them in a book kind of thing. So what is seen from what is seen by a public from what is seen by the individual is a very, very narrow slice of time. So I, I believe if one wants to be trusted, your aesthetic needs to be something that appears trustworthy. And these are all vague terms, I realize, and imperfect and imprecise, and I won't belabor that for all the reasons that are implied. Because I have this kind of democratic egalitarian style, I suppose, there aren't tons of pictures. Uh, I'd say th this is a favorite. That being said, I can still pick some I like more than others. And a lot of pictures I like also when it, with the story that comes with them, you know, with Disco Night, for example, there's a story with every picture. Usually I like the pictures that I also like the stories with. 
you know, so I take page five. It's just a picture of courtroom. The courtroom doesn't quite feel right. It's kind of bare. There's something a little bit off. And it turns out it's a training for the U.S. military kind of JAG Corps, which is the Judge Advocate General, the military lawyers, training for a mission that they never actually performed. So it's this like farcical process of a fake courtroom for a fake mission for something that never came to pass. And the sort of surreality of that and the absurdity of that is something that I'm attracted to. And I think that's sort of an enduring thing in a lot of the pictures of mine that I like and other people's that I like the most is there's this line between reality and and sort of fantasy and spectacle theatricality that I like. And that picture there, so this picture on page five of Disco Nights of a mock courtroom where soldiers were trained prior to deploying to Iraq for, for a mission they didn't um, didn't end up fulfilling is a really extraordinary example of the gap between visualization and reality. So how soldiers were sort of encouraged to visualize their mission, how their commanders and so on were visualizing what would go on. And then the sort of dissonance, the gap between that and what really happened, what they really ended up doing, what they were really able to do and succeed is really fascinating. And I think your picture, the sort of the emptiness, the artificiality of it um, really brings that out. Yeah, exactly. On page 32, which is 18 in the PDF, there's an image, you know, and it's just a quiet moment between an Afghan village elder and a U.S. Marine. It's sort of a symbol in a way of the distance between the two. And I'm attracted to pictures like that because, you know, the, the pictures that are that are emblems of the circumstances. Um, and, and this was in an area, one of many villages that I was in across the country, where the floundering attempts of the US military to kind of create some kind of alliance of convenience with the locals was as usual kind of an abject failure. One time in the many kind of small villages and and valleys and, and remote areas I visited in Afghanistan that I see a young kind of American officer successfully forge a relationship with local village elders. It happened to be in a very, in a, in a town that was particularly contentious and particularly violent, but he had a strength of kind of character intelligence that was extremely unusual. Most of these junior officers were probably pretty good warriors, but they weren't very good anthropologists or diplomats or all the other things you need to be when you're fighting a counterinsurgency. But he was all these things, as well as being a, a warrior. And I remember being really impressed and mentioning it to him. And he, he and I actually some very good friends. And, and he just kind of rolled his eyes when I pointed out the successes. And he's like, you know, it's not going to last. It's impossible. The conditions are essentially set up for that not to last. You know, I was able to make a marriage of convenience. The next person that comes in will not. That marriage of convenience won't last. You know, it probably wouldn't have even lasted with me much longer. Sure enough, the guy that came in to replace him uh, was killed within months, along with most of his unit and the area they were in was abandoned. So one of the greatest successes I'd seen quickly turned into a notorious failure. And I think the photograph that you've highlighted there with this is the, the U.S. soldier sitting next to an, an Afghan elder, a uh, village elder from a, a rural village in Helmand, that really captures that sort of lack of success, that ongoing struggle to create a marriage of convenience at all. The two people in the photograph they're not communicating with each other there's you know the soldiers just sort of staring ahead looking glum the Afghan village elder has got his head on one hand and is sort of looking weary and that picture really you know as you say it's not aesthetically um, beautiful in some ways but it does tell a really profound story about this failure to establish meaningful successful lasting dialogue um, so it really captures a, a moment in time that captures a sort of deeper truth about the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's and then page 54 of the PDF is a picture and it's just some dust being kicked up on a rocky mountainside and, and there's some soldiers crouched down and the dust getting swept up by by the rotors of a of a helicopter. There's no violence in this picture, there's no direct emotion in this picture. 
in many ways, it's more just an intriguingly aesthetic picture, you know, that carries some weight when surrounded by others, but also is something that kind of stands on its own, you know, as having both meaning, but also some amount of meaninglessness. It doesn't say that much in and of itself. But I like it, and I like pictures like this, because they're also symbols of what can be so attractive about war to people. It is these moments of kind of transcendent beauty and adventure and excitement and you can't see or have or experience in any other way. And those things are very, very seductive. And I think, you know, people come out of these experiences like myself, very ambivalent about them because experiences embody so much about what it means to be human. And that's what the pictures also try and do as well, is not create some sort of narrow propaganda about what war is, because war is so human. It is so close to, you know, the surface of our skin and close to our, some version of our best selves, which is why it persists and why it's also a dirty secret in some ways. But it's so fundamentally ourselves that to deny that would be to deny why this horrible force has persisted for so long. To deny the fact that we ourselves are violent and contradictory creatures. It's interesting to hear you talking there about, you know, how seductive some of these images are, how they sort of feed into our ideas of sort of iconic war images, life on the edge, the sort of the adrenaline, the exoticism and the adventure of some of it. But alongside that in Disco Night, you've got so many other images. And, you know, you talked earlier about your interest in representing war holistically, not just the front lines, not just the combat. And that's really true. I mean, I think the most striking thing about the book for me is the huge range of images of war, which it contains. So there are images of soldiers on patrol, checkpoints, injuries, guns, but there are also photographs of notes written by soldiers on tour, funerals back in the US, funerals in Iraq, wedding parties in Iraq, US citizens on the streets of US towns reacting to the capture of Osama bin Laden and so on. Um, so the book looks at this conflict, at different conflicts from Iraqi, Afghan and US perspectives and it captures so many angles and so many aspects and I really do think that the book for me has absolutely stretched my habits of visualizing the Iraq war for example and war more generally. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your organization of the images in the book because it's not chronological we go backwards and forwards in time and we also go backwards and forwards between scenes in the US, scenes in Iraq, scenes in Afghanistan, you know soldiers at rest, soldiers at war, civilians injured or just going about their daily business and that order of images is, is really interesting. One of the things which the Visualising War Project is interested in is the interaction between different narratives or different images and how that interaction actually helps us visualise different aspects of conflict. What were the organising principles for the book? So in the PDF, you don't see that every page where there's four images on it in the physical book is actually a gatefold. It's, it's a story folded into the main body of work. So it's organized in kind of a dual fashion in a sense. One is a non-narrative, non-chronological sequence that's partially drawing aesthetic connections, partly kind of emotional connections between the images and with an emphasis on what I talk a little bit about in the introduction, which is the simultaneity of these existences. If there's one thing I found throughout this process of sequencing, which is how do you combine a lot of disparate parts into a unified whole? How do you create an experience that covers vast terrain, both kind of emotional and geographic, and make it one thing, one thing that seems coherent to an audience? And how do you do that when you're denying the viewer, the reader, in many ways, the terms of storytelling that they're used to, which is kind of a linear narrative. And that process is, you know, you learn it partly from osmosis, from, from other people's, and partly then that osmosis becomes instinct. By process of elimination, almost, you, you find out the story you want to tell and how to tell it. And this is where the, the subconscious and the conscious mind have a kind of interesting and perplexing interaction with one another or lack of interaction with one another. Um, and it can be the essence in many ways of photography, you know, where to direct one's gaze and how to direct one's gaze as a photographer is a, to a large degree a conscious process. You know, you get to the point you're at, 
the stories you want to tell because you've thought these things through usually. Then once you're there and scenes are unfolding very quickly in front of you, you're guided generally by instinct. Things are moving too fast to be really making choices. And it's the same thing with making a photo book uh, in a way. You know, you can consciously decide, I consciously decided what I wanted people to feel and understand and think about. But in order to get there, there's some mysteries of the process that I that I'm unable to to, to appropriately define. The mysteries of storytelling, um, and uh, you know what you've just said there about the sort of the mix of instinct and conscious planning is is really interesting to hear. So I suppose that that gets me to ask another question. I, I took a I, I read Disco Night from beginning to end, and, and it took a long time over it. And I have to confess that I found it an incredibly hard read by the end. So it does show some close up images of, you know, horrendous injuries, for example, but that wasn't what made it feel really difficult. It was the sort of slow build up that grows of one small but brutal incident after another. And the growing realisation for me through all your images that the horrors of war are not just the result maybe of an overall strategy or the failure of an overall strategy, macro politics, but very much the result of lots of micro acts of aggression, of fear, of ignorance, which are repeated wherever groups of soldiers congregate and get scared and get desensitised. And earlier you talked a little bit about the sort of desensitization process. And I think your book really does expose that desensitization of soldiers who are far from home operating in really hostile conditions and what it does to them, but also by extension, what it then does to civilians. Um, so I suppose one lesson I took from the book was that war really brutalizes people's minds, which then in turn makes war yet more physically brutal. So I suppose I want to ask you if that was what you were trying to communicate. And you said earlier, as you grew older, you ended up feeling very anti-war. So, so is that what you were trying to communicate? And also, I suppose the flip side here is that one other powerful truth, which I think your book exposes, is how little we all understand that truth, that war is so desensitizing that that's one of the sort of things that then makes it so brutal. Because you have all sorts of images of US civilians waving flags, supporting aggressionist policies, memorializing their loved ones as fallen warriors in, you know, with iconic imagery and so on. And so I think you sort of really expose that gap in a way between our understanding, our habits of visualizing war and that reality which your photographs is bringing out. Would that be a sort of, would, would, does that reflect what you were trying to communicate with the book or were you trying to communicate different things which I haven't pulled out? I mean, I think it was a lot of those things and sometimes these things are more clear upon reflection than they are at the moment. And ultimately I wanted with the book you know, I call it a slender document and I still believe it, it is, but I also wanted to kind of pack as much information into it as possible, pack as much information into it that had coherence, but also seemed to contradict itself and pack in information that was both, you know, as you kind of mentioned that sometimes moments of extreme violence, but moments of extreme violence that could coexist with a reflection of my mom in a window and that all these things could be treated kind of equally and simultaneously as part of the same story and that not seem... Surprising. I mean, it's partly why in this book and, and the second book I did, which is more related to the United States, it's a little bit it's interconnected, but slightly divergent, not directly related to war, even if it's very much about the consequences of war and, and the conditions that enable a war. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the point being, I, I'm setting myself up as a character in a way, because I think any viewer should know who's telling them the story flaws and all, and actually focusing maybe on the flaws. I'm not trying to delegitimize myself as a narrator, but I'm trying to make very clear that I'm a, a flawed narrator and human and vulnerable and confused and uncertain. And so in the hopes that those things also give the things I feel a little more sure about uh, added weight. And I think there's a long way of saying that, that I was trying to do a lot of things consciously with this book and probably a lot of things uh, unconsciously, but mostly my main enduring thought in the process of making it, especially because it was the first kind of book that really felt like something I'd, I'd seen through. I wanted to do justice to, to the events that had kind of defined and formed and forever altered my life without any kind of regret that I'd left a stone uncovered but also without the kind of regret that I'd uncovered too many stones and lost the coherence of it, you know, and it was delicate process and one that had to be gut checked. I think every step of the way by people I trust to, that, that I knew we were going to call 
you know, bullshit when they saw it, which they did. So it comes back again to this idea, this sort of desire and the importance of a holistic visualization of these wars, a sense of these sort of multiple realities that might clash with each other, but that are nonetheless authentic, real out there and that, that are important to communicate. You've just talked about your role as a narrator, and I think that's a moment really for us to talk a little bit about the text that goes alongside the images in Disco Night. So you've got descriptive text for each image, and sometimes it's just it's very factual. It's some basic background to the picture, but it usually is very carefully selected to bring out key things. So for example, there's one image in the book from a hospital in Baghdad in 2006, and it's a head and shoulders shot of a US soldier holding a young Iraqi child in his arms. And the text says, a child wounded in the abdomen by shrapnel from a car bomb. After surgery, several of the smitten medics posed for pictures with the semi-conscious girl. And, and that text hit me really hard. In just a few words there, you capture so much. So I think the image on its own without the text would look like a really tender moment, a sort of single soldier cradling a civilian, caring about a victim of the conflict and this sense of sort of human compassion reaching across the, the divide. But your text tells us and sort of gestures to a much more troubling reality. Obviously the soldiers genuinely cared, but they also somehow needed to cradle, almost exploit an injured girl to get in touch, I suppose, with their very complex feelings about it. And so the girl in the image kind of becomes a double victim. She's injured, but she's also slightly mauled about, semi-conscious by multiple soldiers for the camera. And that mix of the text and the image kind of gives a depth of insight, which perhaps the images alone, or the image alone couldn't, couldn't necessarily achieve. So did you think about publishing the images just on their own? And how differently do you think people read the book with the text compared to how they might have read it if it had just been images with no text? No, I never considered publishing the images on their own because almost every picture in the book came connected to a story that seemed equally as important. And I felt confident enough in my writing skills that I would be able to tell that story the way I thought it needed to be told. That shifted a bit later with Sorry for the War, where I think I reached a point where my pictures were doing the simple craft and clarity of the kind of vision I was trying to express aesthetically became crystallized and refined over the years. And so by the time the work from Sorry for the War came about, which started about eight years later than this work I started on Disco Night, I could go with the pictures first and with the expectation they were going to a large degree speak for themselves, but then still realize that they weren't enough, that context and text were critical parts. They would just go in the back of the book as opposed to alongside the image. And I, with many of the images in Disco Night, I wasn't necessarily totally confident in the image itself at that point. And also that the image itself, because they're oftentimes a little more direct, a little more traditionally documentary in nature, a little more violent in nature, certainly more individualized, you know, I felt that it would also be doing kind of a disservice to some of those moments to separate the text from the image. They weren't there as emblems, as aesthetic objects that are stand-ins for greater ideas. They were about the person in the moment themselves. Hence the importance of the text did not just describe what was in the picture, but described what was around the picture. You know, you don't need text to tell you what's in the picture. The picture should tell you what's in the picture, but you might need to tell, but because the picture only represents the tiniest slice of time and, and can easily be taken out of context to suit whatever, you know, aims or needs the viewer has to recontextualize it for the, in their own mind. I wanted to be damn clear that, that there was a specific context that, that was important with this young girl and this young medic. I didn't doubt for one moment the honesty of the emotion because this was a group of doctors and nurses and medics who were generally, you know, even if they're in the army, they're not the obvious warrior types at all. Generally, you know, healthcare professionals have a lot of regard and respect for. I particularly had regard and respect for this group of healthcare professionals. But they were also ultimately a lot of very young people like myself at the time, caught in a tremendously violent situation. And at a certain point when the tour, losing perspective a little bit on how to react. And it's only upon reflection that some of it became clear to me that it was a little both tender, but also depraved. And I think clear to them too. And in this particular unit had major issues coming home towards the end of the tour. One of the medics died of an accidental overdose. 
There had been widespread abuse of stolen medications that were pocketed during the heat of the moment when, when lots of casualties were coming in. And then when they got back to garrison, there were a lot of disciplinary issues. There were drug-related issues and the, the unit in some ways kind of disbanded. And there was a lot of residual and enduring pain people had from the violence that, that took place in their tour. I suppose what you were saying there about the role that the text plays goes back to your approach to photography itself, the desire to provide context, not just drama. And it really speaks to, I think, to, I think your integrity as a, as a photographer um, and, and your desire to document and so on. As you say, you, you take a completely different approach in Sorry for the War. So um, readers of that get the chance to look at the images first and, and, identify whatever story the images suggest to them but then there's that opportunity at the end of the book to look through the images again with accompanying text and I think that's a really interesting approach too and and I should say that the images come with text that's both English and Arabic as well so that tells us a little bit about the audiences you're you're, you're trying to um, communicate with. Can you just tell us a little bit about um, you know, sorry for the war. So you write in your introduction there, nearly 20 years after September 11, America's recent wars are all but forgotten, though their consequences continue to reverberate. For the past 15 of those years, I've documented the dissonance between the United States at war and the wars they really are. So so this book very much continues your work in Disco Night and, and your other photography, but can you explain what you're particularly trying, what you were particularly trying to show in this latest book and, and maybe explain the title? Yeah, the I mean, all these books, this Disco Night, uh, Buzzing at the Cell that we're, we're not discussing here, but and, and then Sorry for the War, and and even 2020, this book I did last year on the kind of climactic event, uh, events of 2020 as seen from the U.S., both kind of, you know, politically and in terms of civil rights, in terms of the, the consequence of the pandemic, all these books are inter interconnected. They're all different routes into looking at America and, and its interactions with the world and kind of it, what it is to itself in the aftermath of 9-11. And, and, and in order to tell that story, you tell the story of, of how we became what we are too. So this is all a long way of saying that, that these books are all kind of chapters in a whole. It's a story, my story about what this country is, what it is to me and what I think many aspects of what it is beyond the bluster and the fluff and the artificial narratives we tell ourselves to create an identity that we can be proud of. You know, they appear in a chronology of sorts, but are anything but chronological, um, but they are a chronology of, of the unfolding of my understanding. And, and by the time I began working on Sorry for the War, in 2014, you know, a few things had kind of occurred to me. One was that, that I'd spent a lot of time documenting the American perspective of these conflicts and that the American perspective was actually a very limited one and that true victims of these wars were really the Iraqis and the Afghans. And that story needed to be told, you know, much more. I need to try and tell that story from their perspective, both in conflict and in diaspora, because shortly after I began work on this book, the massive refugee migration of 2015-2016 occurred, which was an incredibly climactic moment, very dramatic, certainly shifted to some degree politics in Europe and, and had almost no impact on the U.S. because though these were largely refugees from our wars, we chose not to take personal responsibility for them in any way, shape, or form. Something that's being to some degree mirrored right now in the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I'm sure we'll have much more resolution to these questions when this podcast comes out, but I can't imagine it'll be pretty. What'll have come to pass will be one that we consider the humane, you know, thoughtful uh, response. So, the, and I'm dancing around the issue here uh, instead of giving you a straight answer, I suppose. But ultimately, Sorry for the War became, you know, my book of apology for these wars to, sh to have a rigorous document of both the wars from the other side and also the kind of conditions of nationalism and militarism and kind of myth-making and propaganda that dominate our kind of own self-contained identity. And it's in the mixing of those two forces that I thought was a more powerful document than only one idea on its own. And that's the tack I've taken with all the books in a way is plugging together a few ideas that I find useful and powerful into, into one. 
And the book definitely feels more autobiographical in a way than Disco Night, for example. More of the text is written from your personal perspective. And for example, anecdotes about how people responded to you as a photographer when you were taking the image. So it does feel a little bit more personal. But absolutely, as much as I've said, Disco Night is sort of very holistic. It's the wide, a huge range of perspectives and angles. I think that's even more true in Sorry for the War. I think you write at the end that Sorry for the War is dedicated to the anonymous lives caught in the middle of America. Wars. 20 years later, we hardly know a face or a name. And there is a real sense that you actually are trying to put those, if not names, at least those faces in front of us and get us to reckon with them and get us to reckon with our responsibilities, I suppose. So not simply looking at this as a document, but looking at this as a set of responsibilities that we collectively all have. I wonder if you can just talk me through when you've been taking photographs in Iraq and Afghanistan, how have people tended to respond to you? What do the people you're photographing perhaps want from you? What don't they want from you? Are there lines that you don't cross? Are there lines that they think you shouldn't cross? What's been your experience of the relationships with the people you're, you're photographing? The experiences are as different as people are different. You know, when I was embedded with the American military, for example, there were those that were thrilled that a photographer was there to document what was happening, sometimes for political reasons, sometimes for narcissistic reasons, sometimes just because it made them feel like what they were doing actually existed, that it wasn't just their memories and the memories of those people, the people around them, but, but that there was some sort of document that people might see. And then there were those that were indifferent. And then there were those that were outwardly hostile that thought that the press was the enemy, that the press was, was going to distort and manipulate and lie. And anyone from the press was going to distort and manipulate and lie. And so the very idea of a journalist was rejected. You know, I've met some soldiers that were extremely hostile towards me. And then when it came to working with Iraqis and Afghans, I mean, you have, especially, you know, in both cultures are extremely welcoming and treatment of a guest is a critical part of, of, of how most people see being like a good citizen. You walk into a, someone's house in the U.S. and you'll be lucky if they you get a glass of water out of it or even asked to sit down. You walk into an Iraqi's home or an Afghan's or Palestinian's or something like that, you know, you're you're going to make nice small talk about how your family's doing and your friends and your children and what have you. And you're going to drink some tea and coffee, and then you're going to have some nuts and some dried fruit. And, and there's a warmth to it that I really, really like about the cultures. And the more time I spent in these cultures, the more I really liked the places and the people. And it became this repudiation of all that I've been taught about Arabs and Muslims and Afghans, you know, growing up, my interactions in person were very different from that and continue to be different, which leads to the next point in a way is that I think as I started spending more time in the cultures and liking the cultures more, I think people can feel that as well. And so a lot of the time when I would go into these stories, I think people understood that I had a certain warmth and affection to try and do the story right and carefully and humanely. And so by and large, I was welcomed with open arms and protected and treated as an honored guest and his family in a certain way. And, and oftentimes very authentically, you know, they really felt like I was being manipulated for an agenda. People seemed to just kind of be glad I was there and that I cared enough and in a way that I trusted them enough to come on my own with a translator or a fixer, but away from the construct of the military. And, and of course, I discovered a very different version of people when I met them away from the military. And it made me realize the depths in which people feared and hated this occupation when I started encountering people, you know, in their ordinary lives. And it's that sense in Sorry for the War in particular that you're looking more beyond the front line of conflict. So in your interactions with people, you're moving away from military escorts and so on, not so embedded. But also, I think, sorry for the war, is more of a retrospective kind of book. And in some ways, it feels like it focuses much more on aftermath than war itself and much more on the ripple effects of conflict. So in that sense, I think you're also really pushing the boundaries and pushing our habits of visualising war. 
just as an example, you've got in Sorry for the War, you've got an image of a Black Lives Matter protest from 2020. That gets us thinking about the militarized police response and connections between conflicts abroad and conflicts at home. You've got an image of a veteran who ended up in prison because his experiences in conflict had made civilian life really difficult for him. And then he was violently attacked by a cellmate. And again, really getting us to think about how wars abroad have all sorts of consequences for lives back home, but as well, those consequences for the people left behind when forces withdraw. So would you say that's a fair summation that you're very much interested in aftermath and ripples of conflict in Sorry for the War? Yeah, I I think that is accurate, though there are quite a few images in the book from active war zones. I wasn't necessarily looking for guys shooting other guys when I would go to those places. At a certain point, you know, I looked at the body of work I had and, you know, you realize that it doesn't matter if this guy's shooting someone in 2006 or in 2009 or in 2015 or in Iraq or in Afghanistan. At a certain point, imageries of combat become extremely repetitive. And so why would I keep chasing the same? Why would I keep trying to say the same thing over and over again? It's not that those things aren't important to say. There's just many people saying those things. We should continue to say those things. And I saw it as my responsibility and my desire to look more broadly and and more deeply. So it's partly about the aftermath, as you say, but it's also a lot about what's going on during it, but just a little bit away from what our expectations of what the front line is. In certain cases, it's a burnt out classroom in Mosul University. Shortly after the university was kind of liberated from ISIS, it's the the skeleton of an ISIS fighter hanging from a uh, pole. It's the portrait of a haunted-looking young girl in a, in a town recently liberated from ISIS. It's the hole gouged out by shrapnel on the arm of a man that's kind of healed over partially, and he's had a tattoo of Jesus put over it. I mean, it's uh, these are the things that you can, the kind of pictures that I can only find by going to a war zone, but also saying, okay, well, I want to tell a different story than the one of the violence itself. Yeah, I think one of the things I want to follow up on there is that sense that some of these images that you can only find in a war zone, but they are not necessarily images that we immediately associate. You know, if we think about war photography, we sometimes have quite narrow ideas of photography that focuses on soldiers, focuses on combat. And you really are stretching our our perceptions, our visualizations. It reminds me actually of a conversation we've had with another podcast guest, Frank Muller, who works on peace photography. And he's really interested in the difference between war photography and peace photography and what difference it might make if images of um, images from conflict zones are repackaged actually as images of islands of peace, let's say, rather than images of conflict. So he would argue that, you know, if we spend more time visualising peace, we're more likely to achieve it. So these sort of pockets of peace are very, very important to document. Just thinking about that, you've, you've got a beautiful photograph, for example, in Sorry for the War, of the first Easter at Karakosh in Iraq after it was liberated from ISIS in 2017. And you write, though the area around Karakosh was relatively quiet, the town lay in ruins. ISIS graffiti was scrawled on the walls of the church, ranging from the mundane to the sinister. Sinister might include a ratio of ingredients for making car bombs, for example. Shattered Christian religious artifacts used by ISIS for target practice have been swept into a corner and a decapitated full-size statue of Santa Claus sprawled in the courtyard. Most of those attending the church service were Iraqi soldiers and journalists, but a handful of local residents came too, including a small girl in a bright coloured robe who was a particular darling of the Iraqi soldiers. They cooed at her outfit and swept her up in their arms to cover her in kisses. And there's an image of this girl at the church. And I don't want to speak for him, but Frank Muller might say, well, this is quite a peaceful image in many ways. And I'm very interested in the fact that in your text, you're really keen to stress the very long shadow of war that suffuses it, that contextualizes it. So what difference do you think it makes how we spin that photograph, whether we sort of stress the conflict in the background or the fragile peace which it also evokes? Yeah, I mean, everyone has a different perspective on what's important to photograph and what's important to show and then what's important to say about that thing that you decided to both photograph and and show. I mean, war photography, peace photography, all these things are, they're sort of distinctions that I don't really think about or care about, to be honest. I think these little boxes that you get put in, people call me a war photographer because it's sort of convenient, I suppose, but most of the work isn't really about war at all war as we would think about it anyhow. And so these terms are extremely reductive in their own right. And and I think distract from the essence of what the work is meant to be about can be used as a way of dismissing what the work is meant to be about. 
So I suppose I don't think about this stuff that much. I just do what I think is right for me and, and increasingly so. I mean, the less I feel beholden or tied to whatever people's expectations are, the more I can kind of authentically reflect on my own experiences in a way that I hope has meaning because it's being done with sincerity rather than with the pressures of the marketplace or of people's labels or people's expectations or what have you. That's come across very clearly in our conversation today, the authenticity, the integrity, the sincerity, your desire to document holistically with with lots of context, your desire to avoid reductive labels or categorizations. And all of that, I think, for me, really results in an expansion of how we look at conflict and not pigeonholing it, you know, actually shattering, disrupting some of the habits we have of looking at it. If I may, I just want to ask a final question. So in Sorry for the War, you write, there's a feeling of fulfillment, but also of emptiness, when the complexity of my experiences inadequately collapses into the two dimensions of a photograph. When I began this work, my confused and naive desires mingled uncomfortably with a sense of duty to journalism and history. Somehow the unexpected grace of these experiences had left me lighter despite the horrors, yet I'm left with the understanding that the work is far from over. So we've touched on your sense of duty to journalism and to history, your sense also of the limitations perhaps of journalism. But that final sentence there gets me asking you what's next? You talk about the fact that the work is far from over. So what projects do you have planned? Will you carry on covering conflict in the sort of broad way that you've been doing so far? What new angles might you take or what other focuses will your photography look at? You know, there's one part to that quote you read that I think is important to just flesh out for one second, which is this aspect of the aspect of the narrator, you know, where the confused and naive desires mingling uncomfortably with the sense of duty and, and also sense of ambition and all these other things. And, and these things are important. Again, it comes to this question of the authenticity of, of authorship, which is when I came up in photography, it was... The narratives dominating were both, you know, war photography and TV journalism and writing directly contributing to the end of this, you know, evil and illegal war in, in Vietnam. Okay, it's a potent narrative. Simultaneous to that came the fetishization kind of of the war photographer themselves as the selfless, noble bringer of truth with courage and with dedication to the masses of whatever those that lack the courage and integrity to go or whatever nonsense and then i started meeting these so-called noble bringers of truth and it's a community i have a lot of affection for and have a lot of friends in and, and care a lot about but also it's just such nonsense you know it's like a lot of deeply flawed individuals and creating myths about themselves and about the profession that had nothing to do with reality and it's like if we're supposed to be there bringing these great truths and we're simultaneously creating outrageous myths, then we have no legitimacy or credibility because it's absurd. I've gone out of my way to poke holes in the myth because that's part of the duty, I think, you know, to the profession, you know. I'm sure I still have plenty of blind spots. But anyhow, so that's answering a question that was never asked. But, uh, and then the other part about what's next is, yeah, I mean, this is what's going to take a long time. I mean, I'm still plugging away at, at kind of this work in Israel and Palestine that I've been doing for 10 years, which God knows how long that's going to take. It's also incredibly complex work, as you can guess. But at this point, I'm trying to look more broadly and kind of holistically at one at the American empire and the history of the American empire, which is partly a work of my photographs and it's partly a work of written history and it's partly a work of archive. So it's kind of an expansion and an extension and of the work, you know, it's like essentially creating the framework of how we got here and, and where we're going. And then from there, uh, you know, the expectation, the thought is to kind of even dig deeper in, into the history of the country and kind of reframe it as thoroughly as possible. Those projects have been done to different degrees in different ways, but largely with, with words. And so, but stories that important are worth telling in different mediums and in different ways and from different voices. And so like with everything, I feel like I can go down territory that has been tread to some degree, but also find my own way, uh, way down it to add to the narrative, because it's important to have a lot of voices, you know, picking apart the true nature of the place we're from. Absolutely. So we'll look forward to seeing how that develops. And can you give us a sneak preview about your Palestine-Israel work? 
I don't even know what to say almost about it yet at this point. I mean, now I've been chipping away the last 10 years, looking at the nature of the, the occupation, looking at the nature of the two societies, looking at it in, in times of relative peace and also in times of war, trying to do similar things I've done in these books, which is look at it from both sides extensively, look at it with kind of complexity and without the jargon and, and propaganda that dominates the externalization of those conflicts by all parties, but partly subverting those things by harnessing them. And by harnessing them, I can kind of poke holes in them. It's partly personal and it's partly documentary. And it's it, it's in the spirit of a lot of what you've seen, but applied to something very different conflict. And so all the context and specificity of that conflict kind of defining what the work and the words look like. But it's, it's got a lot of work to do still. You know, even after 10 years, I haven't even started shaping it into a book. Well, if your other books are anything to go by, Peter, it's going to be another really hard hitting one, which is going to get us looking afresh. And I think with very compassionate as well as very well informed eyes at what's going on in that region. Your mention of the word externalization there is, I think, is really interesting because that is a really useful way of understanding some of what you're trying to do. You're trying to unpick, deconstruct some of the external narratives that have shaped people's understanding of different conflicts and also explore those external narratives themselves and juxtapose them with these narratives from within narratives on the ground it's been really fascinating talking to you and exploring the ways in which your habits of visualizing war have changed over time how you've been using photography to observe and question and critique indeed shift the public's ingrained habits my own personal habits politicians habits of visualizing war and i really do think that politicians should read disco nights and sorry for the war because you know i think there are books that really pack a punch and and have the potential to really shift mindsets so thank you so much for sharing them with us and just a reminder to listeners that you can see some images from peter's work on the visualizing war website but also do check out Peter's books, Disco Night, September 11, Sorry for the War, and his other work as well, which isn't quite so focused on conflict, so we haven't talked about it so much today, but which is really impactful too. So thank you, Peter, for being thank on the you. podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and really interesting interview. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. If you want to find out more about Peter's work, you can also visit his website, www.peterfanagdmail.net, where lots of his photos are visible. As I say, I strongly recommend you get hold of a copy of his books. Please do tune in again next week to the Visualising War podcast. Today's episode is part of a short mini-series looking at different visual representations of and responses to conflict. Next week, we're going to be interviewing award-winning artist and illustrator George Butler. George specialises in reportage. He uses pen, ink and watercolour to capture current affairs, particularly humanitarian crises and the aftermath of conflict. So we're going to be talking to him about his experiences of drawing in many different conflict zones around the world and also how drawing differs from photography in some ways. And we'll be diving into his latest book, Drawn Across Borders, which combines art and text to help readers visualise people's experiences of conflict and migration. So do join us for that. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Girtin. Thank you for listening.